You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. So if I say the words, famous last words, I wonder what might come to your mind. Um, if you do a Google search on like celebrity famous last words, it's really, really fascinating. Because what you find is there's this temptation when we think about like the last thing you say, the last thing ever to come out of your mouth. There's this temptation to kind of like reverse engineer like back from that phrase, reverse meaning back engineering to somebody's life and go, oh, that's what they're really about. That's what their life meant. Famous last words, it means something. This last weekend, um, I went uh, camping overnight in Allegheny National Forest. It was like this beautiful, like one night. It was like the one day was like 71 degrees and like the trees just looked gorgeous. It was like this red and like orange and like ochre feeling and it was great. And before I left, you know, I was like, well, I want to be gone overnight and Mandy's here, the kids are here. It's like, I want to give you like just a big hug and just some words. And I was just like one night <laughs> and I knew I was coming back. It was one night and those words just meant a lot. Famous last words. There was this pizza campaign a little while ago. Do you remember, what do you want on your tombstone? Remember that one? This idea of thinking like, gosh, what do we really want to be about? What does my life really, really mean? That's the question we're going to be asking this morning. What is your life really, really, really about? This is the last week of this series called Restored. It's a character study in the life of Paul. We looked at Paul as a disciple of Jesus, this guy who meets Jesus on the Damascus Road and has this incredibly transforming experience, turns him into a missionary. Now his life just has turned the entire other direction. His life has lived for the purpose of God and for the betterment of other people. Then he becomes a church planter and a pastor. And today we're actually going to look at Paul as a martyr. I'm going to take a look at not his last words, but at least I think how Paul would like to be remembered. Just a thought for us before we get into the text. I'd be willing to bet that most of us here today or most watching online, you'd be very thankful for the life that you have. We're very thankful that we're alive, that we get to do these things and go outside and even on mornings like this, you get to feel the rain and you have people around you who love you. We're very thankful that we're alive. We understand that life is a very precious gift. I think the thing that I want us to take a look at today, just to heighten the preciousness of that life a little bit, is to ask the question, whose cause am I really living for? I want to hold Paul up as an example of a life turned inside out with profound meaning, who cherished every last breath of his life. So here's the story really quick, and then we'll get to the text. Paul is off and about on one of his missionary journeys. He's ping-ponging around, and he's talking about Jesus everywhere he goes, because this is what Paul does. And he comes into a port city called Miletus. And as he pulls in, he's like, gosh, I really would like to see my friends from Ephesus, that church where he spent so much time and invested so much effort. And so he calls 
the elders of the church of Ephesus. He says, come on over here. I want to talk to you guys. And he has this sneaking suspicion that he's never going to see him again. It's this interesting kind of premonition. And so there at Miletus, he has this conversation with these elders, this group of people that he had invested time into. And his words are really powerful. Take a look at Acts chapter 20, verse 18. What we're going to do today is we're going to look at this little section of Paul, and then we're going to talk about six principles that come out of this text for how you can make your life count. Verse 18 of Acts chapter 20. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there, or follow along on the screen behind me. And when they came to him, that is, the elders of the church of Ephesus came to Paul, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time when I first day set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and tears with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks the repentance toward God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this sounds a little bit like what we talked about last week, Paul's message, right, to the Thessalonians. He says this very strong, clear gospel message. There's so much we could talk about here, but in the spirit of famous last words, I want to focus on what Paul focuses on. What we get from Paul, even right here, is the distillation of every sermon he ever preached. And quick spoiler alert, it is a nine-word, two-point sermon. Don't you get any ideas about me being that brief? <laughs> It'd be great if every pastor preached a nine-word, two-point sermon. You're not that lucky. Here's what we get from Paul. Basically, guys, I've only ever had one sermon, he says. I've only ever preached one message. I've only ever written one book. I've only ever had one conversation. And here it is. All of Paul's letters, every sermon he ever preached, every conversation he ever had can be boiled down into one two-point mini-sermon. Here it is, verse 21. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two ideas, repentance and faith. What do those ideas mean? Because on their own, they kind of slip into like Christian jargon. Right? That's like insider language that you use. It's not really all that helpful. So um, if you want to sound spiritual, slip those words into conversation. But they mean a lot more than just what you might think on the surface. First off, repentance. Repentance literally means a turning away, like a change of direction. This is a whole lot more than just my bad. <laughs> a whole lot more than like, I'm sorry. Repentance is something much deeper. For repentance to be real, it's got to have three crucial elements. And for this, I'm going to go straight to Spurgeon because nobody talks about repentance like Spurgeon does. Here's how Spurgeon describes repentance. Repentance is a hatred for sin. It is a turning from sin and a determination in the strength of God to forsake sin. Isn't that great? You see the three things in there? First off, it's a hatred of sin. It's a hatred of sin. It's, it's more than just, I'm sorry, or I did something wrong. It's hating that thing that I loved. It's not self-hatred or self-shaming, like, I'm a terrible person. I'm such a screw-up. Oh, I'm such a... Mm. That's not repentance. That's, not, that's just self-hatred. That's very different. 
Repentance starts with seeing this thing that I love in my flesh, this thing that I used to count on, and I see it, and I go, gosh, I used to put all of my weight on this. I used to trust in this thing. Repentance is seeing this for what it is and saying, I don't want that anymore. Repentance isn't me just admitting that I do the wrong things. Repenting is me admitting that I love the wrong things. And so it has to start with a hatred of sin. The second element of repentance, though, is a turning from sin. Inward repulsion isn't enough. Like, I don't like it. I want to be done with it. That's good. That's where it starts. But here's what usually happens for me, is as soon as I like, get off that thing, whatever your chosen poison is, that thing knows me really well, and so it calls me back. I'm sure I'm the only one that experiences this. It woos me. It seduces me. It knows how to lure me back in because it knows what I like to hear. And before long, I'm kind of like sliding back in on it again, right? I'm the only one who ever deals with any of that. I'm positive. The reason that works is because I've grown comfortable with it. That's how insidious sin is. I'm used to it. And all that reveals is that I didn't really break up with my sin. I just got mad at it, and we're on a break. <laughs> but now we're back together again, and it's all good. There's an old adage, "'Tis not enough to say I repent and then return the way I went." There has to be a turning from it. This is the alcoholic dumping everything down the sink and then smashing the bottles. This is the porn addict getting rid of the phone and saying, it doesn't matter, I don't care, I want this thing out of my life. This is the cheating spouse confessing their unfaithfulness and then blocking the number. Repentance is not theoretical, it has to be real, and so I have to create distance from that thing, that useless idol. That's the second part, is a turning away from sin. Third part for repentance to be real is a determination in the strength of God to forsake it. Again, Spurgeon, I thought this was so insightful. Here's what he says. Every sinner hates his sin when he comes near to the mouth of hell. Whew. Every murderer hates his crime when he comes to the gallows. I know that's heavy, but I think he's right. What's he mean? Here's how to know if you've really repented from sin. And this is right in, this is the, the very front of Paul's message, okay? We'll get to the good stuff in a minute, so we gotta go through the heavy first. Here's how to know if you've really repented of sin. Would I still do it if I knew I wouldn't get caught? If I could somehow remove the consequence of sin from you, if there was no hangover to haunt you, no search history to bust you, no Life360 to track you, no image to maintain, no narrative to perpetuate or reputation to preserve, if I could somehow remove the consequence of sin from you, would you still hate it? And if you go, well, I mean, if there's no consequence, like I'm just, that's not repentance. But if you can say, honestly, yeah, because that thing is a liar, and I hate it, and I want it done. I don't ever want to see it again. It's bankrupt. It's empty. I need something else. If you're saying that, that's repentance. 
So if that's the first point of Paul's mini, lifelong, 2.9-word sermon, repentance, turn from, insert idol here. If that's his first point, what's the second point? Paul, if I'm turning from this, choosing to unlove this, if I'm confessing that this doesn't work, what do I turn to? What do I count on? If it isn't this, 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 whatever, if it isn't that, what do I count on to get me through? Great question. Glad you asked. Second point in Paul's two-point lifelong sermon, repentance toward God. And then what is it in verse 21? Faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What constitutes saving faith? Um, I'm not sure if you're like me. I, I have very little patience for just like words that are just like kind of strewn about without context. Like, oh, just have faith. Just believe. Just believe. Be a faithful person. I'm like, well, yeah, but to what? <laughs> like, what, what am I believing in? What is the object of my faith? Like, I don't just like a word that says believe on a Christian coffee mug, and I'm like, yeah, man. I'm, no, what, what am I believing in? What do I have faith in? The object of faith is what matters for a Christian. And so it's really important that Paul doesn't say just have faith. He says have faith what? In this. Have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't just like have a theoretical faith. The object matters. Saving faith is not faith in an idea or a religion or a church or an opinion. Saving faith is trust in a person. And so what Paul's saying here is if you're going to hate that, turn from that and leave that behind, what are you choosing to love? What are you choosing to run toward? What are you hoping in? Otherwise, what's going to happen? <laughs> And his answer is very singular, Christ alone. And that's it. Like repentance, saving faith has three crucial elements to you, and I think this might be helpful for you. First off is knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge is understanding something and recognizing it as true. Like I can take a look at this stool over here and I can say, I've seen these before. This is a stool. Have you you've seen a stool like this? We've seen these things. It's got four legs, right? I believe this thing can hold me. Makes sense. Like, not too wobbly. Feeling all right. That's knowledge. Knowledge is the first element of saving faith. But knowledge on its own isn't enough. It's why James says, even the demons believe that and shudder. What does he mean? He means that even the demons believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, but it doesn't save them. Why? Because it's too external. It's just up here. It's like, yeah, over there. There must be something else for saving faith. Secondly is belief. Not just knowledge, but belief. It moves from my head to my heart. And I go, okay, not only do I believe academically that this thing could probably hold me, I now believe to the point of conviction. And this sounds stupid because of the metaphor, but I am convicted that this thing could hold me. I have an emotional connection. I'm willing to fight for it. It's moved me internally now. I get it. It doesn't mean that emotion saves you, but it does mean that you can go, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? There's this sense in which I look at the claims of Christ and not just say, oh yeah, he's a good savior. He is who he says he is. There's gotta be something more than that where I go, no, 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 that's actually for me. 
Not just somebody could sit on that and it would hold them. I, I could. <laughs> that could be for me. You see how this moves from the realm of the academic and theoretical to the realm of the personal? So there has to be knowledge, there has to be belief, and then the last element of saving faith is there has to be trust. Here's trust. It'd be really terrible if that thing broke right there. <laughs> but this is trust. It's like, I'm putting everything I am on this thing. I'm not like, I'm not hedging my bets. I'm not counting on like Jesus plus. I'm not like gonna be a good person and then maybe Jesus will help me out if I'm not a good person, right? Like it's everything is on this thing. There's nothing held back. This is called volition, trust. This is the third element of saving faith. And when Paul says, turn from that and put your faith in this, I am counting on this thing to deliver me from whatever ails me. That's a great definition of God, by the way. I know that's really philosophical, but just sit there for a second. Great definition of how, what you think about God. Your conception of God is whatever you're counting on to deliver you from your greatest need in your life. And Christian theism says, I am counting on Christ to deliver me from my greatest need, which is my sin. And he can fix it. He can atone for it and him alone. And so in Paul's two-point sermon, repentance and faith, that's what he's going after. Now, let's back up a little bit. This is Paul's lifelong two-point sermon, nine words. Stop counting on this. And for his Jewish audience, it's the law. For the Greeks, it's idols. For any one of us, insert idol here. Stop counting on this, trust him. That's everything he's ever written, everything he's ever said, everything he's ever thought, just variations of that truth. So let's sit with this for a minute. Jesus must be really special if he can actually deliver on that promise. Don't you think? If Jesus can really fulfill all the longings in my heart that I've left behind, he must be pretty amazing, huh? If that was good, because let's be honest, sin feels good, always for a little while. If that was good, and he says, greater joy is over here, he must be something special, huh? <laughs> but now I want you to hear how this nine-word, two-point message, this super simple, super powerful word, captivated Paul's life to the point where it changed Paul's life. Go back to Acts 20, verse 22. He says, that was my sermon. That's all I've ever said for years and years and years. Repentance, faith. Verse 22, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. What a great phrase not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Stop there. This is Paul going like, I've got to do this. I've got to go. God owns me. This is going to be really tough, but I got to go anyway. And then comes the line that Paul, in his pre-Christ state, could have never said. And this is the verse that Paul could never have said before he met Jesus. Verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. 
If only I might finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What is that, Paul? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And that's the line. That's what's on his tombstone. He doesn't have one. But if he did, that's what would be on there. That's what Paul's hanging his life on. My life means nothing to me, he says, except for one thing. I just want one thing to make Jesus known among those who don't know him. I want people to know that the God of the universe is real and that he's been gracious to us by giving us salvation through a savior whose name is Jesus Christ. And that's all I want. That's it, Paul's saying. My life doesn't matter to me at all. D.L. Moody um, was an evangelist who lived in Chicago in the late 1800s. And um, he's kind of like the king of one-liners. He and Spurgeon kind of went back and forth about this stuff every once in a while. It was really entertaining if you kind of follow their writings and their letters to each other. Um, And you guys know I'm a sucker for a good one-liner. So here's one that I would commend to you from D.L. Moody. The world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him. I love that. Here's what I think he's on to here. The problem isn't that I don't love Jesus. Sure I do. You do too. At least I hope you do. The problem isn't that we don't love Jesus. The problem is that I love a lot of other stuff too. In verse 24, is such a defining line in the life of Paul because it reveals what matters most to him. And so I've got to ask myself, like just take a look at verse 24 again. How would I complete this phrase? My life has no value if only I might. Might what? And what follows that phrase is what's most important to you. If only I might what? My life has no value. If only what? Whatever comes to your mind, it's almost like a reflex, isn't it? We all had the little flags pop up. We all just had little thought bubbles go up in our heads. How I complete that reveals my deepest ambition. Slide on down to verse 36. Paul says that, and he says a lot more. And then he says, and when he had said these other things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all of them. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. After this, Paul heads to Jerusalem. He preaches Jesus, quit this, trust him, and he gets arrested. Of course he does. (laughs) He pinballs through the Roman court system for a few years. He ends up under house arrest in Rome. He stays there for about two years, and then he's executed by Emperor Nero. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Nero, who about a month after that, would end up dead himself. We don't know Paul's actual last words. Scripture doesn't give us that. But here's the last picture we have of him. I want to just show you the last portrait in the book of Acts. Acts 28, verse 30. This is talking about his time in Rome. said he lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense 
and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the last picture we have of Paul. Everything else is history and early Christian biography. So is that a tragic story? Is it a good story? Is it a model story? Why do we have the life of Paul splayed out in the way that we've done this? I want to put a magnifying glass over Acts 20, verse 24. In this last week of this particular series, we talk about Paul being a martyr. I think there are six principles that are very critical if you want to make much of Jesus in your life today. Hopefully that phrase resonates with you. Make much of Jesus every day to everyone. That's kind of like what Paul was about, so we just kind of like stole it from him, so there's that. (laughs) Six principles that I want to throw your way today. Principle number one, your life has value. And I think we need to start here. Because I believe that there are some of you in this room and there are some listening online who don't believe that. And I know that because I used to believe that about myself too. That's very, very real. Some of you think that you're a bother. Some of you believe that you're a pain. Some of you sometimes, not every day, but you wonder if the people around you would be better off without you. And I need to tell you, please don't believe that. Your life has tremendous value. We're going to hang here a minute because it's super important. You hear those words from Paul where he says, I don't count my life of any value to myself. And that's the part of the statement that you agree with. You go, yeah, I feel that one. So we got to push this further, though. You're wondering if your life is valuable or if it's precious, and I need to tell you it is more precious than you could possibly imagine. Psalm 139, verse 13. Just listen to these words. This is David talking to the Lord. He says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And I praise you, for I am what? Fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, God. My soul knows this very well. Your life has value. And there may be people around you right now, thoughts inside of you and circumstances in front of you that are conspiring to convince you that you're not worth very much. And a quick word for me is not going to solve everything this morning. But as someone who speaks on the authority of God's word, I want you to know you have been made on purpose, you have been made with a purpose, and your life is more valuable than you could possibly imagine. But we can't swallow this first point too quickly. We can't just go, well, your life has value. Like, you know, okay, well, it's easy for you to say. I don't feel like it. Why? This has to be rooted in something, right? The idea of a valuable life has to be rooted in something outside of you. Point number two, your life has value because of God. If you ask the secularist or the atheist why life has value, they have absolutely no consistent answer. Usually it's just like a vague response, like, well, your life has value so that you can make the world a better place. And I go, well, who gets to say what better is? And, like, but to what end? What's the point? Let's, let's get philosophical here for a little bit. Every human life is hardwired for meaning. And the atheistic worldview has absolutely zero structure to give it any meaning. <laughs> 
Without God, life is either two things. It's either pursuing pleasure or avoiding pain. That's it. There's nothing beyond that, nothing beneath that, nothing outside that. If you follow atheism to its logical conclusion, you end up with complete relativism and eventually complete meaninglessness. Shakespeare's Macbeth was right when he said, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Sorry if you just had like a little bit of a reflex from your eighth grade English class. <laughs> the only logically consistent conclusion the atheist can come to, though, is that absolutely nothing matters. We breathe in and out, exchanging the gases of the atmosphere for a few decades, and then we're gone. The atheist's greatest sadness, by the way, is seeing a sunset and having no one to thank for it. Just going, huh. Here's what I want us to see. That structure, the atheist structure, the secularist structure, has no reason to value human life. And I wonder if many Christians are just practical atheists when it comes to understanding the value of human life. Because for the atheist, all you are is the random result of an evolutionary process. For the atheist, life is not a creative spark, it's a cosmic mistake. All you are is a bone marrow frame wearing a meat suit hurtling through space resting on a ball. That's it. I don't mean this to sound trite, but it's no wonder that as God has moved to the periphery, the value of human life becomes less. Because the value of human life is always tied to the individual creative spark of a sovereign, loving God. Christian theism, by contrast, the belief that God created you, you, like individually, Psalm 139. Gosh, the idea that you are known before you're born, you're seen before you're seen, and you're loved before you know it. The idea that God of the universe lent you his breath for a few decades while you're here. That idea that makes you not a mistake, but a beautiful, lovely, handmade creation. And that idea infuses life with value and beauty and dignity and goodness. Christian theism rests on the idea that you are created, seen by, known by, loved by the God of the universe and is the only starting point for understanding a meaningful life. This answers the value of life, maybe, but it still doesn't answer the point of life. Because if there is any skeptics out there, you're going like, okay, 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 okay. Maybe that makes life valuable, but I still don't see the point. Okay, cynic. <laughs> point number three, just to answer this, your life only makes sense with God. <laughs> it only makes sense with God. Some of you know this story, but for those that don't, my life was saved by reading the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a great book. It's in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. It's written by Solomon. And I read Ecclesiastes at a point in my life where I was deeply frustrated by the emptiness of my life. And if you've never read Ecclesiastes, here's the summary, quick three points. Life is meaningless, and God made it that way so you wouldn't find fulfillment in pleasure alone, but in him. That's the summary. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, wisest man who ever lived, and Ecclesiastes is his wisdom TED talk. It's basically this, Solomon going, look, let me do you a favor, everybody. If you're curious, Solomon says, look, I was the richest man in the world, didn't fill me up. I had women like you wouldn't believe, didn't matter. I had money, influence, power, fame, nope, 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 nope. And so for anyone who's curious, Solomon's saying, let me do you a favor. 
Let me fast track this whole meaning of life thing and save you some time. Life is meaningless. God made it that way so that you wouldn't find pleasure in life alone and meaning in life alone, but in him. That's the quick version. And before I, or the first time I read Ecclesiastes, it was the first time that God's word made sense to me. When I read it, and I'm going, that's what I'm feeling. Like, I'd grown up in church, done the whole church thing. Like, I was in, like, a praise band thing. I was memorizing verses. I was doing everything I could do, right? But there was still something that didn't connect. <laughs> and then I read Ecclesiastes, and I go, that. Now, I know that sounds a little depressing. But that's actually really good news. Here's why. Only when I release the pleasures of life from the expectation that they should fulfill me am I free to enjoy them for what they are. I'll say that again, because that's a big idea. Only when I release the pleasures of life from the expectation that they should fulfill me am I free to enjoy them for what they actually are. Do you know why people are disappointed with life? Life and jobs and spouses and kids and relationships and governments and neighbors and 401k plans and your TV provider, right? Why are we disappointed with all that stuff? Seriously, like you want to, you name it, we'll find a way to be disappointed in it. We're people. Why? We are chronically disappointed because we expected those pleasures to fulfill something in us that they could never, ever fulfill. We are all functional, albeit largely unconscious, idolaters. French philosopher Blaise Pascal said that everybody's got a God-shaped hole that nothing else can fill but God, and until God fills it, we are lost. Fourth century African theologian Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. What a great thought. We're disappointed with life because we expected something from life that it was never meant to give us in the first place. And the curious paradox is that only by releasing life from this often unacknowledged expectation that it should fulfill me am I then free to receive it as a good gift from God. Practically, I'll give you a really silly, silly, simple illustration. I can only enjoy the taste of an apple when I release it from the expectation that it should fulfill me, and then I receive it as a gift from God meant to lead me back to him. Relationally, I can only enjoy marriage to Mandy when I do two things. When I release her from the expectation that she should fulfill me and receive her as a good gift leading back to the God who can. If you're a parent, you can only enjoy your kids, Joseph, Karsten, Hannah, when I do two things when I release them from this unwritten expectation that they should fulfill me, then I can receive them as a good gift from a God who can. Now, that's not like distant, cold-hearted stoicism, like, oh, life is so bleak, blah, 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 blah. It's actually really good theology. It sees the pleasures of life as a trail of breadcrumbs that lead us back to God, a God who's good enough to give us gifts, but also jealous enough to prevent us from finding fulfillment in them. <laughs> The gospel according to Ecclesiastes is that God loves you too much to let you rest in anything but him. Three more points. These are going to come really quick. Your life only makes sense with God. Your life has a limit. And since we're doing a bit of sober philosophical navel gazing, let's push this a little bit further. You have an expiration date. 
And I'm sorry to sound like the Grim Reaper, but it is Halloween, so just have that one. Your life has an expiration date, and God's word says these really crazy things about death. Take a look at Ecclesiastes verse, or chapter 7, verse 2. It says this, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. What? Better to go to a funeral than a wedding. What is that about? That makes no sense. David also says this in Psalm 49. He says, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave all their wealth. Gosh, this is so depressing. Last one, the book of James says this. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a little profit. You don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time, and then it's gone. That's some pretty heavy stuff. And I know you didn't come here this morning for that. And in one light, I know, this can be a little depressing. Like, gosh, thanks for the pep talk, Pastor. Sheesh. And in another light, it can be really anxiety-inducing because you're like, well, it's going to happen. I don't know when. <laughs> so what's God's point? Why does God give us these words? Why I'll throw all that out there? Here's the point. Only when you accept that life is finite do you accept the, li- the need that life needs to be focused. Only when you accept that life is finite do you accept that your life needs to be focused. As long as you think you're living forever, man, you could just drift But as soon as you become conscious of your own mortality, you kind of start to think about things a little bit. And I don't say that to depress us, but to focus us. A finite life is a focused life. God intends that whatever years you have here on this earth not be wasted. Do you hear that in Paul? I don't count my life of any value. If only, uh. Point number five. You will be known for something. I've been to enough funerals to know that everyone, almost everyone, is eulogized, solemnized, remembered in some way or another. Same thing happens at almost every funeral. A bunch of people gather around, friends and family and coworkers and kids and spouses, and they say nice words about the person, and they reflect and they have memories. They remember, they celebrate. Some mourn a passing, some anticipate a reunion. And whether you hit your limit laying in a hospital bed with electronic beeps over your shoulder, or if you go quietly in your sleep, when your life ends, you will be remembered for something. And so here is the insight that I want you to consider. Nobody spends a life. Everyone invests a life. Do you understand the difference? No one spends their life. Everyone invests it. And once we realize that our life has a limit, we start to invest in what we value. And that investment happens either consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally. But here's my point. You will be known for something. And while you're still alive, you still get to choose what that something will be. Now, do you hear Paul in there? I don't count my life as any value, except. And so here's the last point. There is no greater cause than Christ. There is no greater cause than Christ. I want to try my best to string all six of these points together. Just walk with me through this. If there is a God who loves you enough to give you the gift of life, and if he is kind enough to infuse your life with meaning and beauty and purpose and value, 
And if that life becomes all the more precious when you realize that it's finite, the only conclusion must be that it is best to live my life for his purposes. Only two things last forever, the word of God and people. Invest your life in those things and you won't go wrong. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the only life that's of any value is pastors or missionaries or people that work in churches. No, 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 no. Somebody said that to me the other day. They're like, oh, you're doing God's work, as if to imply that no one else is. Like, that, that, that's not right. God's called you to be a plumber. You be the best plumber that you can be for the glory of God. If God's called you to be a teacher, you fill your, your classroom with kindness because God is kind. If God's called you to change oil and fix brakes for cars, you do that with trust because tr- God is trustworthy. No matter what your station is, li- in, is in life, God needs you there to be a missionary where he's placed you. That's this idea behind restoration. Much, much bigger than just what happens for 90 minutes on a Sunday morning. I'm not saying this to twist anybody's arm, but you do realize that your life is the only sermon that most people are ever going to hear. And so here's the question. What's your nine-word, two-line sermon? How would you complete Paul's sentence? My life has no value, if only I might what? So let me help us out a little bit. Band, you guys can come on back on and we're going to sing this song that we've been singing throughout this series. There's some of you in the room or some watching online that you're still sitting like over here on this thing. And this thing is still important to you. You've never said, you know what, I, I want to be done now. I, I, want, I want to have this out of my life. You've never actually repented. And I'm not talking about addictions. I'm talking about something just very basic saying, I am trusting in something that's not the Lord, and I want to be done with that stupid thing. Some of you have never done that. And so I want to encourage you while we stand and sing in just a minute. Sometimes the physical can be a catalyst for the spiritual. And if you've never repented, come on up here and just kneel at this altar. No one's going to bother you. No one's going to think that you're weird. And just have a moment with the Lord and say, Lord, I want to be done with that thing. It's a liar, and I hate it, and I want it out of my life. Some people are kind of, we're still doing this though. There's a second group in here where you're kind of like, you're kind of hedging your bets. (laughs) You still love that thing back there. You may be saved. You said, yes, I trust Christ, but like, eh, we're still kind of flirting. Use this moment to break up with that thing (laughs) and not break up on a break, like break up and be done. Like right now in this moment, you can sit here and you can put your hands up and go, God, I'm getting rid of that thing. I don't want it anymore in my life. I trust you. There's some of us who, even though we've come on over here, and even though we've sat on this chair and we said, yeah, we're here, I trust you, Lord. There's some of us where our lives are still a little bit more about us than we'd like it to be. And if we could say like, well, my life has value only if I might or if I could, uh, that thing is still all about us. And let me tell you, there's actually nothing more freeing and nothing more scary and saying, Lord, I actually want my life to be about you. Take me and use me for your purposes. I don't just want to get to the weekend or the next vacation or the next thing or the next pay raise or the next whatever. I want my life to be about something different. And so if that's you too, I encourage you during this song, like let this be a time where you take an open-handed posture and say, Lord, take my life and use it for your purposes. So here's where we're going to go. Whichever group you fit in, let this be a time where it's just you and the Lord. If you, while we stand and sing, if you're 
feeling the Lord prompt you in a way. There's going to be folks at tables in the back by these columns that we've been referencing the last couple of weeks. And you go, gosh, I just want to pray with somebody. You can head back there, and it's a discreet way of saying, I just want to pray with somebody and unload some stuff that was on my heart this morning. This would be a good time for you to do that. And so let's stand if we could, and let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would work in this moment. I know these things are so real for so many of us, but this isn't theory, and this isn't just something outside that we're wondering about, but we feel these things very deeply. So spirit, move. Have your way. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.